Polcast. It's informative, it's entertaining, it's exciting, and it's my source for all things Polish. When I listen to Polcast, I can be sure that I'm going to discover some kind of buried treasure, something that I didn't know about Poland or Polish people, or Polish culture, or Polish traditions. And not just in Poland, but in countries all over the world, in Canada, in India. I mean, who knew? Thank you, Polkast. I just can't wait for the next episode. My name is Ted Dawson, and although I'm not Polish, I love the stories and the issues that Polkast covers. My partner, Eva Henry, and I are also very, very grateful for the support Polcast has given us in many respects, but particularly for our volunteer project working with youth in Tanzania. Polcast to me is not simply a podcast, but it is a strong supporter of the work, the interest, and the lives of Poles everywhere. Thank you, Polcast. When I feel like, uh, you know, relaxing, I tune into Polcast. <laughs> Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausage. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to episode 71 of Polcast. It's me, Margaret Bonikowska, Polcast host and producer. Polcast is produced in Toronto, Canada, and is the only English language podcast about Poland and Poles around the world. Well, I've been a journalist for over 20 years, and every day I'm grateful for each and every encounter with the people I meet and the stories I discover. This is also the core and heart of podcast, incredible stories that people share with me, either in my work for the Polish language newspaper in Canada or daily Gazeta on the market for 31 years, or for podcast, or both. It's my true privilege to be able to talk to so many people and learn from them. Thank you, my friends. Today, I will take you on a trip all around the world, Poland and the Canadian province of Newfoundland, Toronto, Berlin, Montreal, and many other places, Siberia, Belarus, Iran, Iraq, India, England, and some African countries, most notably Tanzania. This will also be a trip in time, going back to World War II and much earlier. Well... Let's start our podcast journey. Canada. This good country, always on top in all the world rankings of safety, living conditions, happiness. But 
There's also another face of this country which has been exposed in the last years. The disturbing history of Canada's relationship with its Aboriginal peoples. Those who had been here for millennia before the Europeans came. The infamous residential schools were government-sponsored religious boarding schools established to assimilate indigenous children into Euro-Canadian culture. They appeared roughly after 1880 and existed for a hundred years. With their aim to kill the Indian and the child, they were the places where sexual, physical, and emotional abuse was a normal practice. They caused unspeakable suffering of the children, forcefully separated from their families. Their legacy is too painful to describe. In 2008, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established in Canada to uncover the truth about these institutions. Joanna Gerak Onoshko spent two years in Toronto accompanying her husband, a journalist working for Bloomberg. Herself, an award-winning journalist, she spent her time working on a book, which was finished after her return to Poland. The 27 Deaths of Toby Obed tackles the painful history of residential schools, showing the life of this Labrador residential school survivor, Toby Obed, and many others. What is extraordinary is the book's incredible success in Poland. Nominations to the most prestigious literary awards, dozens of glowing reviews. Joanna has had countless meetings with readers and the feedback from people who live thousands of kilometers from Toby and his world is truly amazing. I met with Joanna when I was in Warsaw a few weeks ago. A great reunion, this time in Poland. We're sitting in a Japanese restaurant in downtown Warsaw. Yes, a couple of meters from the table uh, where the 27th death of Toby Obed um, was written and edited. So this is a sacred place for me. It's a sacred place. So I'm meeting Joanna after almost two years, right? One and a half years after she left Canada. And we did things together in Canada. You came for just two years to Canada. Yes, we moved there in um, 2016. We moved to Toronto. We didn't have any connection to that place. We didn't have any family or any friends. It was a big adventure and a great part of our um, life. Now we're back to Warsaw, uh, but there's never been a day that I wouldn't dream of Canada and my life back in Toronto. During those two years, your husband was working for Bloomberg, doing his journalistic stuff, but you kind of seemed to be sitting at home and not really sitting at home. You were doing something quite amazing, which now we're seeing as an incredible success. Let's talk about this thing, which is the book. It was born through newspapers. My understanding uh, is that the w- best way to learn to tame your life in a new place is to go to the library and to read newspapers written and published in a local language. So when my husband uh, was leaving the house to go to his office, I was um, taking care of the children and I was uh, inundated with uh, freshly printed uh, sheets of Toronto Star and um, 
Globe and Mail, uh, and I was devouring uh, Canadian press. Uh, and then one day, I saw it was November 2017. I saw this amazing picture um, of Toby Obert hugging Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, two Canadians coming from separate worlds during a very emotional meeting and the, the emotional load of that picture was so immense the story behind this picture was um, uh, was so intense I thought uh, I need to do some more research because there's an amazing story my journalistic instinct started working and I uh, wanted to get to know his story okay before you go on I want you to tell our listeners who Toby was and why these two people coming from two different worlds, as you said, although living in the same country, why were they in this emotional hug? So this picture came from, an, uh, from a very emotional event in the Happy Valley Goose Bay, Newfoundland and Lab- Labrador, uh, where Prime Minister flew in to offer his apology on behalf of the Canadian government and Canada to the people of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, to the survivors that were put in resi- Indian residential schools during the 60s and, uh, and 70s. And Toby Obert is a survivor of one of these schools, uh, Yale School, uh, in Northwest River, and he uh, was chosen to accept or not the apology. We call it a journalistic miracle. It happens once or twice in your life, if you're lucky, that you encounter such a big story hidden behind a beautiful picture. The picture comes from 2017, and uh, there's Joanna sitting in the big library in Toronto reading the article and seeing the picture. Now, what happened then? And then I realized that the Canadian society is discussing the, um, the issue of Indian residential schools, the apology, and the consequences of the, um, the Indian residential schools. And this is not a topic from the, the last page. This is discussed on your front pages. This is as important as the taxes and as uh, governmental uh, issues. So then I thought, me as a foreigner, I have to learn a lot, I have to study a lot to grasp this, uh, this problem. So I... Um, I went to Toronto Reference Library, enrolled in a course run by the uh, University in Alberta, run by indigenous professors, a course in indigenous history, and then I spent weeks and weeks in AGO, of Ontario, which shows not only magnificent Canadian art, but also they host uh, workshops, a course on indigenous history, and they, uh, they run a group. Everybody was invited. We run through the port of from the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and those meetings were not only for discussion of, on, on, on the content of the, of the report, but also it was like a support group to help the people come to terms with what they read. Yes, it was a safety net for people that uh, realized that Canada has a very dark page in its history, but you're bigger than that. For me, um, with all, uh, with all the, the European history put in my backpack, with all my European education and European point of view, you, the Canadians, the Canadian spirit is the um, is an amazing example that uh, you can grow from a difficult history and you may uh, you may do better. It's a phrase that comes uh, so often um, in Canadian discussions that you, we can do better. I think it's a great motto for your for your country. So you did all these amazing things. You, you attended all these courses. And at which point in time did you come up with an idea that it's going to make a book? So I was studying it for myself and for my children who used to attend. Canadian um, nurseries and daycares and Canadian schools. I thought that um, if we chose Canada to live there for a while, then it's my obligation to teach my kids that uh, we're not the first on the land, that somebody else used to live there and now uh, they're not there and it's not from the from the natural causes. I'm a former journalist and I 
talked to my friends back in Poland about this magnificent history of, of sin and uh, reconciliation, and nobody heard of this story. So I thought, how come a big nation back in Europe has no clue about this uh, this uh, incredible process you are um, experiencing back in Canada. I pitched the story to different uh, publishers here in Poland, and they were interested. And I signed uh, a contract with uh, one of the, the leading nonfiction publishers, even before the first a first sentence from the book was ever written, because they thought it's um, it's a story with a great potential, and it's uh, this is a story that must be must be told. Still, I had my uh, limitations because I was not born in Canada, and I. I didn't want to appropriate the story. I thought it must be very diligently researched and, uh, and written with the, the utmost respect to the, the true characters of the story. Then how long did it take you to actually write the book? Oh, writing is the easiest part, you know. <laughs> Research is the, is the most difficult part. Then uh, crafting your language is the most, uh, it's a very difficult, it's a grueling part. Uh, writing was the easiest uh, and the most um, pleasant part of the, of the, of the journey. Uh, it took me six, maybe seven months. Um, I finished this book here in Poland, here in Warsaw. Um, but the characters, the, the story, the narrative, uh, and the emotions that are in the text are fully, totally Canadian. I want to know what, what this whole process taught you. What did you discover? Because I'm sure it was a great uh, journey of discovery. There are so many levels and so many layers, like in an onion, that you're trying to peel. This book, is the story of sin and reconciliation, can be read on so many levels. And, and my personal experience was very emotional, because uh, back in the day when I was uh, documenting uh, this book, my children were uh, at the school age, and they were very little. And I was, I was document, documenting the trauma and suffering, um, uh, physical, sexual, and spiritual of, of the indigenous children. So it was a very di- direct bridge from my experience, my kids' experience, to the indigenous children um, uh, trauma. So it was a very, uh, very grueling journey. So um, there are many different lessons that you can take from the story that I try to take uh, and give to my my own kids. The first one is uh, you should never be quiet. You cannot be quiet. We have just had the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz um, camp here in Poland, and Maria Durski said that the 11th commandment should be, you shall never be indifferent. Uh, and I think it's the same lesson that you have already had in Canada, that indifference and being silent, being quiet, actually is a crime. So the time spent in Canada, my own personal time spent on documentation of this book, uh, has direct impact on my family and many of my friends, that we shall never be quiet. Can I ask you whether you think that Canada has dealt with this incredible dark part of of its history, which actually lasted for many, many years, because I believe the last school was closed in 1996. Harming children is a sin you can never repent for, and there is no time, no money that can ever heal those wounds. Still, Canada is a master of apologizing and making bad things right. Although it's a void that can never be filled, there is no other country in the world that has ever done more. So 
So um, that's just apologies, but we still have indigenous people living in poverty and having no access to the clean drinking water. That's right, because that's not ancient history. It's part of the reality, right? It's, uh, nine, it's, it's 80,000 survivors living in Canada right now. Uh, you're sitting next to them in, in the um, in the streetcar. You're dining uh, with them. Your uh, your kids go to school with with the survival children. So this is living history. I'm in awe. I admire what Canadians, especially Canadians, have done on this difficult part, part of reconciliation. I guess it's uh, it's got a very definite beginning, like the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission report, and there's been a lot of um, symbolic beginnings and symbolic events. But this role has no ending, I guess. The book is an incredible success. It's still being promoted, probably going to be uh, translated into other languages. But can you explain what it is that Poles find so fascinating about this book, other than it's talking about an interesting country, which is Canada? I guess that the characters uh, are Canadians, and the background is totally Canadian, um, and the facts are based in Canadian history. Okay. But it's, it is a universal story of uh, retention, of um, coming from a dreadful sin to the, uh, to the absolution, and it's a great story of hope. So this totally universal story of resilience and courage and being honest about your past and the ability to do better is something we can all learn from. Do you think Poland is ready? I think we are not. And I have so many doubts if we ever will be. Because what we are definitely lacking is the education. When my kids were put in um, in public Canadian educational system in Toronto. Um, they knew from the very beginning that they're not the first ones on the land, uh, and they wore orange t-shirts, uh, and they acknowledged the land. So every morning when the, when the bell in the, in the public school in Toronto rang together all the kids, the headmistress, she welcomed all the kids, and then she read, read the uh, land acknowledgement um, text. Earlier this this year, we have experienced the, uh, a real earthquake when the documentary by the Sakielski brothers was released. It's a growing story of uh, pedophilia system built by the Catholic Church in Poland. Um, and the title of this incredible movie that's available on YouTube is Don't Tell Anybody. And my understanding is that this is a phrase that is very common in Poland, while you in Canada have transformed, you have moved from Don't Tell Anybody to Let's Tell Everybody. So this is a lesson we can all uh, learn from and grow from. Did you expect this kind of incredible success? Well, my publisher and I, we knew it's an incredible story. Uh, we knew it's, uh, it's very diligently written and that the background is diligently checked. So we knew it's a great, um, it's a great book, but we didn't expect this sweeping success uh, in terms of emotional reception. I'm attending a lot of uh, meetings with the readers, so this is a book that moves so many people on so many levels, and I guess we deserve and we need a serious conversation, serious discussion about what was done here on our land too, who's responsible, and why it's still a crime to to hurt the child. Uh, And to remain silent. And to remain silent about it. The so-called bystanders. This book, of course, is written in Polish. It will be definitely translated into English, but you also had a chance to be interviewed by mainstream Canadian media as well as 
indigenous media. What do they say? Well, I guess there are so many great books and so many non-fiction books and fiction books for, for adults and for little children about the legacy of the, of the Indian residential schools in Canada. But this is something we don't talk about back in Europe. So uh, I'm honored that um, survivors shared their stories with me and I hope that the uh, book will, will be translated and put on the Canadian market. But still, it's, uh, it's a Euro- European point of view, it's a European perspective and the story totally belongs to Canada. But I do believe that it's a great thing for Canada, that it is written by somebody who is looking at it from the European point of view. I think that's actually a great benefit and advantage of that book. Thank you. I think the more perspectives, the better. The more narratives, the better for uh, for every story. But I guess it's, uh, it's great that the Canadian way of, uh, of reconciliation, of saying uh, we are sorry and we can do better um, spread spread outside um, your great country congratulations you've done an absolutely amazing amazing work thank you thank you Mogos it was a pleasure to meet you again to learn more about Joanna Gerak Onoshko and her book as well as the residential schools in Canada please visit our podcast website mypodcast.com Those of you who have been a loyal podcast listeners will surely remember a very popular story we featured over two episodes, 46 and 47, entitled A Child's Journey from the Arctic to the Equator, where I interviewed our podcast friend Irene Tomaszewski, author and the editor-in-chief of the great online magazine Cosmopolitan Review. We talked about her childhood and the unbelievable journey she and her family made from Siberia to Africa. All this happened during World War II, after the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the east, just 17 days after the Germans attacked Poland from the west on the 1st of September 1939, thus beginning the Second World War. From 1940 to 41, The Soviet Union emptied eastern Poland of up to a million people considered hostile to its occupation and used them to create new colonies of forced laborers across Siberia. While their parents were used as forced laborers in forests, cotton fields, and mines, children like my grandmother, who were too young to work, were sent to school to be transformed into the next generation of Soviets. She described it to me as a prison without walls, They were surrounded by death in the camps, but not by fences. If you walked out of the camp, though, you'd be surrounded by millions of square kilometers of Siberian forest. Thousands of Polish families were forcefully deported to labor camps in Siberia and other parts of the Soviet Union, where many of them died of starvation, disease, and exhaustion. Then, when Germany attacked its Soviet ally in 1941, Poles were freed by Stalin, and they made their way south to Persia and India and then to Africa, where between 1942 and 1952, over 18,000 Polish women and children lived in refugee camps. 
This is a story of monumental human displacement, virtually unknown to the world, even to historians researching World War II. Most individuals in the West, certainly in the United States, uh, are not aware even today that in September 1939, Poland was invaded not just by the Nazis, but also by the Soviet Union. The story of these deportations and the tragedies that they brought to so many families is very little known outside of Poland. This is exactly what a Montreal-born Polish-Canadian heard from his grandma. She was just 12 when she reached a Polish refugee camp at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro in present-day Tanzania. Jonathan did more than just listen to his Babcia's story. He studied the history of Polish women and children who found themselves in Tangaroo camp and other such camps in Africa. The result of many years of his research is his haunting documentary, Memories Our Homeland. The film has been shown at numerous film festivals, including Moscow, and was recently screened at the World War II Museum in Gdansk. I reach Jonathan in Berlin, where he's attending the Berlin International Film Festival. Wow, Jonathan, you're in Berlin at another film festival. I don't even know if you keep track of how many festivals you have shown your film at. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I can't count how many. Um... I'm happy to be here. I actually just screened in Gdansk. Uh, I'm in Berlin just to meet with people. I haven't actually screened here this year. Well, I watched your film. It's, a, it's an extremely powerful film. And although I know the topic very well, it, many, many things made me think about it even more. In mm -hmm. fact, there are two aspects, like two dimensions to your film. There's this general historical part and there's this mm -hmm. personal and family part. So I want to talk to you about this moment when you were at this class at the university in Canada and your professor says to you that never happened this is something that mm -hmm. irene tomaszewski also heard right that that never yeah, happened exactly how come i want to ask that a university professor doesn't know about any of this or university professors plural don't know anything about that huge huge part of in fact europe's history or world's history i should say yeah i mean i think one of the answers to that question is um about the timing that i was at university um it was late 1990s um so the archives uh in the of the former soviet union had barely been opened uh so most of the professors that i was studying under had already gotten their phds before those archives had opened so their understanding of history had not really been affected by everything that was still yet to be uncovered and still is yet to be uncovered uh so the professors that were saying, well, this couldn't have happened, had gained their expertise based on an incomplete picture of the Second World War. I think also that there was a appreciation of some of what the Soviet Union had done. So they tended to ignore the darker aspects of what had happened and downplay some of the events of almost outright ethnic cleansing, because that couldn't be possible in the Soviet Union. So it was a combination of those things, which to be honest, at the time, I was only 19. I barely understood. 
but you were lucky in the sense that you had those stories at home, right? Your grandmother yes. told you the stories. There were lots of Siberia uh, survivors who never talked about it, who never told their families. This is, yes. in fact, some of yeah. the problems, right? Because it was all blocked or they didn't want to talk. Your grandma yeah. told you a lot. At which point in your life did you realize that it was a very important thing for you personally? Well, it was when I was 27 or 28, and I went to South Africa on an internship for a Canadian NGO for the first time. And I had a very strange sense that I was feeling at home, which, you know, for a white guy from Canada with a name like Jonathan Durand, not very ethnic, not, um, it didn't show that I was Polish. Um, I was on the one hand really integrated into Canada and that was exactly what my parents wanted, you know, for me to be Canadian. And yet on the other hand, the stories in our family were all about, uh, how my babcha had grown up Polish in Africa. So the first time I went and lived in Africa for six months or so, I had this really weird sense of feeling, um, uh, feeling of having coming home to something. So trying to pick apart what that feeling meant, you know, a white guy from Canada coming to Africa, what does that mean to feel at home? I realized that it was connected to the fact that my family had spent a long time there and a difficult time there. So coming back to Canada, I started interviewing my babcha about her childhood. You actually made a whole bunch of trips uh, to many places yeah. to yeah. film this film, which was shot for a long time until it was yeah. finished last year or two years ago. When you were there for the first time, did you then discover the the camps, the remains of the camps, the black people, wonderful people who are still, you know, guardians of the cemeteries and all that? Or was it just that you heard about it after you got back? You see the map? The map that shows Polish refugees camp around the world during the World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Polish refugees camp. All around the world. How many years have you worked here? 30 years now, from the year of 2001 until now. 30 years. Yeah. And, uh, I have inherited this site from my father, who, who worked and lived with this Polish community for many years, from the year of 1942, when they opened the camp, until the year of 1952, when they closed the camp. This is the, the history of the World War II in Swahili language. The first one that I put there, I put the, the, the history of the World War II in English. All families, including children and old people, we are transported to the Soviet Union, to Siberia, to Colmia, to Kazakhstan. We, and we are, we, are the, we are forced into slave labor under extremely difficult condition. And then to Iran came Iran, Iraq, Palestine, Libya, India, Africa, and Africa, and Mexico. The history now in Swahili language. Well, you know, it's it's funny because it's one of these kind of magical things in life where if you put energy into the universe, it will come back to you in ways that you can't even imagine. So uh, there are two things that happened that helped me figure out where the camp was. One of them was I woke up one morning in 2009 and I said, I've never Googled 
the village that my Bapcha lived in. So I Googled the name and one of the first results that came up was a blog of a Polish priest who lives to this day in Africa, in Tanzania. And he was writing about coming to Montreal to give a mass to the children, the Korolikowski orphans. And he had actually written this blog eight hours earlier. So he had just arrived in Montreal the night before, and I had some strange flash to look for the village. And I connected with him, and he actually gave me a lot of um, good contacts with Polish priests and with people in the community. Uh, and the other one was a Canadian friend of mine um, was heading to Tanzania to do some work for an NGO, and she asked me to help her set up her video camera and you know get some stuff in order so that she could film. And um, I asked her where she was going, and she said, well, I'm going to Tanzania. I said, oh, that's where my grandmother's from. Whereabouts? She said, well, it's near Arusha. I said, well, that's also where my family was from. Where exactly? And she said, Tengeru. So it turns out that she was going to work for an NGO that was literally located in the refugee camp or the former refugee camp that my family was from. So she filmed in the cemetery for me and she filmed around uh, what was the camp back then and came back to Canada with images that helped me get a sense of what was still there. The amazing part about all this is that you kept digging deeper and deeper and getting more and more knowledge. That part when you went to London, you discovered the actual archives and specific uh, information about your grandmother. And then when you discovered that amazing final footage, when you actually see your grandmother walking around or in front of that hospital, your grandmother unfortunately passed away, which yeah. is a terrible disaster because you can't ask her any more questions. You have all yeah. these loads and loads of photos that you never managed to ask about. Is, the, yeah. is your journey finished? Well, you know, I think there's two things. The, the first is that the more I started researching, the more I realized that the uh, experts that I thought would know about this didn't know anything. So I would contact a professor at Cambridge or Oxford who were specialists in refugee history, and I would show them something that I'd found you know, in one of the archives, and they would say, wow, Polish refugees in Africa? I don't know anything about this. Can you let me know what you find? So the digging led to the understanding that actually this wasn't really well-known at all, which kind of becomes addictive because you're finding things that haven't really been shared publicly before. And I'm not the only one who's in this position. Those of us who are doing this work of digging into where families come from, as Poles deported Siberia who ended up in the Middle East and Africa, we're all becoming experts of our own history. That's a really empowering feeling that is really hard to let go of. Like you just want to keep digging and digging and digging. And the other part is that as the film has been finished and gotten out into the public and people are starting to see it, I'm getting people contacting me and giving their version of the stories, like as the, you know, survivors or their children or grandchildren. So one woman contacted me a couple of days ago to say that she'd come across my film and she'd really like to see it because her Grandmother had grown up in Tengeru, and her great-grandmother was actually buried in Tengeru. She died of malaria and is in the cemetery there. And my grandmother, of course, in the film, I talk about this, she had malaria and spent a lot of her time in the hospital. So, you know, my grandmother and the great-grandmother of this woman probably 
knew each other. Shared the same. You knew each other. Yeah, shared the same space. So you realize that like you're part of the same community of people. So, so the answer to my question is your journey done. It's not right. It never will be. No, no, never will be because it's not just about me learning my own history. It's about learning the history of a community. And the more I share my own story, the more I I come into contact with people who with the same history or who are doing the same work. You asked a number of times your characters, various people you spoke to about Polishness. What is Polishness for them, right? But I want to know what it is for you, because you're the grandson of these people who were there, and you were born in Canada, you're Canadian, and of course you have Polish roots, but do you feel Polish? Well, I think the answer is in the film. Do you have an answer to that? What do you think that my Polishness is from, from the film? Well, I think it's in the memories, right? Yeah, it's in the memories, and the memories are part of storytelling. I think the most Polish thing about myself might be the urge to tell the story and to know my story and to make sure that it's told. Storytelling is an important part of Polish history because of all of the erasure of the borders and the things that have happened over its history. Other groups coming in and trying to erase Polishness, grandmothers telling the story to their children and grandchildren is what keeps the history alive. So for me, as the grandson of my babcha, I think making the film is me expressing that Polishness. It's saying that this is important and I feel connected to the history and that by telling the story, I'm sort of expressing my Polishness. Are you on a mission to make the world understand and learn as well? Is this important to you or is it more of a personal thing? I think that the history of what these people went through, and it's a very small history, you know, against the backdrop of the Second World War, tens of millions of people who were displaced and, and, and killed, um, 20,000 people who ended up in Africa as Polish refugees. It's not a big number of people, relatively speaking. But what, what, what they went through was kind of an education in a common humanity, in a sense. So my babcha and all the others went through it as Polish citizens. But I think that how they came out of it was as people who'd explored like a deeper humanity. So I think for me, that's the thing that I find so compelling about all this is that not only is it a Polish history, but it's a story about a kind of a deeper humanity. You know, it's a Polish story that expresses something beyond Poland itself. And it shows how the history of Poland can actually have lessons today. Part of the problem of these people was not just what happened to them from Siberia to Africa, but what happened to them afterwards, right? They, they had no place to go. Nobody really wanted them. And they were always outsiders. Is this important to you to be able to show that part of history as well? If you look at the history of the deportations themselves and the Eastern Poland being given over to the Soviet Union, and the people like my babcha and hundreds of thousands of others couldn't go back to Poland. That's a very tragic history. It's, and it's a history that not only the Soviets, but also the Allies erased. So if you look at the bare facts of that, it's hard not to feel a little sense of bitterness about it, of course. During the war, British and American newsreels said that Poland was a victim of the Nazis. But if the Poles in Africa had been victims of the Nazis, and the Nazis had been defeated, why weren't they going home? After six years of a war that started with Poland being invaded and occupied, 
it still wasn't free. It was fully occupied by one of the two countries that had invaded it in 1939, the Soviet Union. While the Polish refugees across Africa were eventually resettled in England, Australia, Canada, and other countries, they were left off the post-war monuments. And slowly, over time, their story was quietly swept away. And yet, my babcha and her sister and the other women in the film managed to live lives of extraordinary dignity and happiness and joy. And they found a way to move on and to be happy. So I think that's the thing that I take away from it, because it's not just about the suffering that they went through. It's the fact that they were able to live happy and successful lives despite it. And that's really about that kind of dignity in the face of the forces that try to erase them and to eliminate them because they showed that they couldn't be erased. How is your how is your film received at these festivals? It's been really interesting, you know, because um, showing it in Montreal as opposed to showing it in Krakow or uh, Moscow, um, of course, the reactions are very different. But the thing that I'm happiest about is that there's this resonance that people feel about it that they'll come back to me afterwards and say, you know, I reached out to my parents and my grandparents to find out about where we're from. And they're not all Polish. I mean, some of them are Vietnamese or Congolese or from wherever. But the fact that they, you know, come away from a film about Poles deported to Siberia who ended up in Africa, wanting to know more about their own family history is something really positive for me. You know, because it's showing that there's something deeper in it all. This is going to be shown in Toronto, right? Is is yep. it going to have a distributor? Is it going to be shown anywhere other than festival kind of trail? Yeah, I mean, this uh, the project is going to be distributed online and internationally, um, especially given that we're in 2020, so the 80th anniversary of the deportations. It's important that it gets seen. Um, so the great thing about being in Berlin and having connected with some of the international uh, festivals and distributors is that it will get uh, seen internationally. And we do have DVDs and Blu-rays and those kind of uh, traditional formats, but it will also be available online. When you look now, this is not 2020. You started in 2008. Do you think, if you look at these years, do you think that the amount of knowledge and awareness of this part of history has generally grown? Are people learning? It's hard to say universally. Um, I don't know. But I do know that I've had a lot of people uh, come up to me, contact me weeks and months later after seeing the film and saying that they tell their friends and they tell people about the Poles who'd ended up in Siberia and Africa. And I think that's important. It's not just about Poles or, or Polonia uh, talking about the history, but it's about people who aren't connected to it, passing it on. So I can't say that the world knows more about it, but it's a good step to have people uh, being compelled to talk about something that deserves to be talked about, which is this history of Poles who ended up in Africa. And generally displaced people and refugees, which is such an incredibly important topic today. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, Jonathan, thank you so much. You enjoy your festival. Thank you so much for making this film. Thank you. My pleasure. Memory is Our Homeland will screen in Toronto on February the 29th, March the 1st and the 8th. 
For all the screening details and more information about Siberian African Odyssey, please visit our podcast website at mypodcast.com. And finally, our podcast Polish food segment. I am talking to our partner, Maria Ruzinski, the author of the innovative project Just Be Cooking. Maria, this is our first episode of podcast series Just Be Cooking. I am so excited. Uh, well, we're going to talk about the ponczki. Ponczki, ponczki, ponczki. It is so funny, right? Because when you actually write it and there are no diacritics, so it's like paczki, which is packages. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it, it should be no surprise that the word ponczki can easily be pronounced by paczki, uh, because it means, you know, a little parcel in Polish. Yes, in fact, that is true. Tell me about the history, right? I mean, there's a whole big, long tradition behind our ponczki. Well, it actually derives from the pro-Slavic um, word ponk, referring to anything round, bulging, or about to burst, which the ponczki is very similar to. So it's like punk in the sense of like a bud in a, let's say, a, in a flower, right? Correct. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's uh, celebrated uh, twice before Ash Wednesday. Uh, on, in Poland, it's around Fat Thursday or Tuesday or, Czwartek. Um, and in American Polish, it's, uh, it's Fat Tuesday, which is February 25th this year. North America, you mean, like both Canada and in the U.S.? Yes, yes, exactly. I didn't even know there was a Ponczki Day. Yeah, not many people knew this. I didn't know this either. Uh, I just recently found out. And it's a National Ponczki Day. Yeah, so it's taken very serious, actually, in, in um, especially in the United States and parts of Chicago, Cleveland, Philadelphia, New Jersey. Uh, in Detroit, they have, it's, it's, it's larger than St. Patrick's Day in, uh, in Hamtrak, Michigan, which is an enclave in Detroit. So they have an annual Ponchki Day parade. They have a Ponchki eating contest, which uh, the record holder is uh, from 2015. Uh, he ate 23 Ponchki in 15 minutes, which if you think about it, it's, it's a Ponchki and a half a minute. So it's, it's taken very seriously. Oh, is this something more of like the Polish community uh, outside Poland day or is it also observed in Poland? Oh, no, it's also observed in Poland. Well, they're very famous places, two famous places in, in Warsaw, Blikle and Pomianowski. I remember that for, oh my goodness. These were the most beautiful, exquisite places that looked like Vienna cafes. So tell me about your connection to Ponczki because, I mean, you know all about making them. Have you made them for your family as well? I have. Um, I don't make them as often, maybe a, a handful of times. Um, I have a workshop coming up actually on February 25th, a uh, Ponchki baking class. On the very day, yes? On the very day of, of Ponchki Day, exactly. So as my students will see, it is very labor intensive, especially when it comes to kneading the dough and getting it just right. But when you make it, obviously you make it in big batches. That event that you organize, is that something you've been doing for a little while or is it the first one? 
This is the first one, the first class. Yes. Yeah, so I'm pretty excited. Um, I've done other classes before where it's uh, where it's been my first and they've just been so successful, like my Borscht and Ushka making class that, that I do annually every Christmas. So that's uh, that's been very fun. That's my fourth year this year doing that. Mm -hmm. And who are the people that are interested in coming to your Ponchki um, big event? Well, it's usually people who are married to people who are Polish or who want to get in touch with their own roots. Very seldom it's people who are actually Polish. And when they make them, when they make them at your uh, workshop or what, at your event, they can take them home. Oh yes, yes, exactly. We make a large batch. Everybody takes theirs home. We eat them at the end. Then we have a nice communal meal meal where I serve some pierogies and some mizeria, some beet salad. It's very lively, and then I sing some songs from the Polish Highlands because I'm also a singer, uh, which you know you can't stop me. And just today, actually, we launched another class on March 23rd. Uh, my pierogi, um, my pierogi class, uh, which is a lunch and learn. It's at lunchtime, so it's from ten o'clock to one o'clock. Yeah. Now going back to Ponchki, what's the secret? Because they are not the same, right, as the typical donuts that you buy at uh, coffee shops. The, with the Ponchki, they use what, what, what's 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 called yeast dough, which is especially rich dough. And the thing about yeast dough is it doesn't collapse when you bite into it, which is similar to like the Krispy Kreme. But most other donuts use baking powder, for instance, for the dough to rise. Ponchki um, have existed since the Middle Ages. And the recipe was really modified when the French cooks came to Poland and improved on the ponchki. It, and they actually made it lighter, spongier, more resilient. And that's what we have today. But in terms of actual ingredients, is there anything special that goes into our Polish ponczki? Oh, for sure. There's, um, there's. well, I mean, if you come to my workshop, there, you'll learn much more about the details, which I have all of that. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of indulgence with the yeast, with the, with the flour, you know, for instance, putting the flour in the oven to, to heat up a little bit before you use it, like little details like that. Really, it's what you know, good quality eggs, good quality uh, butter, uh, fresh oil is really what gives you that ring around the ponchki, which is very significant to the ponchki. But you mentioned the oven. I thought they were deep fried in like frying pans, no? Oh, they are. Yes. I'm talking about the flour, even before you use the flour to put it in the oven to heat it up. Oh, the actual flour you put in the oven. Exactly. Oh, this is what I mean. Yeah, this is the details. Yeah. And also we use a shot of alcohol. So any kind, rum, um, um, vodka. And what that what happens there is that uh, when the, the ponchki is being fried, uh, that um, the center of the ponchki is kept nice and fluffy and, um, and soft and, and chewy, not filled with alcohol. I didn't know that. Well, I've never made ponchki myself, frankly. That's the truth. I've always bought them, but I find that, um, you know, the ones I can buy here are different from the ones that I remember from my childhood. These were the little ones and they're very, they were very delicate. They're honestly two completely different species of ponchki. And one is just like so beautiful and wonderful and so delicate and most exquisite kind of Viennese style. Okay, so this is what's happening with ponchki, but I know there's something else that you're preparing. You're cooking. What are you cooking? What are you preparing? Some other other events are coming up, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We have, uh, like I said, our March twenty third pierogi making class. Then we have the next day. I'm hosting a borscht workshop, which um, I usually do that during Christmas, but now we're going to be doing it um, in March, which is exciting. So I do a borscht making with Ushka, 
Um, I also have a drop-in dinner on February 26th, which is the day after National Ponchki Day, and I'll be serving pierogies, kielbasa, ponchki that I fried fresh. Yes, um, so that's coming up, uh, and that's all. That's at the Defenaire, which is at College in near Dufferin, uh, right here in Toronto. So, if people want to um, to uh, come to one of those events, how do they find it? If you go to just be cooking, just be cooking .com, and uh, you'll find all the information there. Do you like ponchki yourself? Oh, I love them. It, they're very dangerous just because if I eat one, then you'll just want another. <laughs> I think they have a lot of calories, no? They do. They, they're about like, I think, 500. Oh. You try to decrease those calories by, for instance, using clarified butter in your ponchki or uh, the vodka I mentioned. That, that helps uh, the ponchki not absorb so much oil. Vodka is caloric as well, right? Like... Alcohol has calories, empty calories. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it evaporates when you fry it, so there's, there's really nothing in there. But um, but yeah, it, it, it has calories. Yeah, but I mean, the, the jelly that goes into it, you know, you can put other things, Nutella, custard. I mean, that also bumps up the calories as well. Where did you have the best ponchki in your entire life? Do you remember that something you found absolutely outstanding, different from any other ponchki? To be honest, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but it's ones that I've made, <laughs> which which uh, I've had in other bakeries, and I think it's just because it's been a couple of days they've been sitting on the shelf. The best kind of ponchki are really the ones you make yourself, and I'm not trying to use that to pitch my class, but they really, really are, and especially the next day when they do have a, a little bit of time to sit on the shelf. Oh, so it's better. They get better. Oh, my God. So much better. It actually is better when you wait because when you eat it fresh, there's just, I don't know. It's like the, the ingredients haven't had time to get acquainted with each other yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, we need time to get acquainted with each other for sure. And so do the ingredients in punch. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? Anything interesting? Anything other than the punch key event and the other events? Oh, yeah. And we also launched uh, our um, Portuguese custard tart workshop, which is on April 27th with uh, the lovely Carla Ramos, um, Portuguese chef, and John Ferreira. Um, he's a great local uh, Portuguese uh, musician that's helped a lot of people in the Portuguese community become who they are today. He'll be there playing some songs. So that's April 27th uh, at the Oakwood Hardware, which is a lovely place uh, at uh, Oakwood Avenue in St. Clair West. So that's great that you change places, right? You're not always in the same spot. Exactly. Yeah, we always try to keep nice and fresh and um, and vibrant. And yeah, some something always different with, for our guests. Well, I definitely wish you the most successful Ponchki Day. And uh, don't eat too many of them. I mean, you probably can't because you're very thin. But if you have like four Ponchki, God, that's 2,000 calories. It's a killer. That's, that's, that's your whole calories for the day. Yeah. If you think about it, if you think about it and people do eat that in one sitting, like, like, you know, Tomas in, in Plymouth where he ate 23 ponchki. Oh my God. So at the end of your event, you're going to be serving other caloric stuff, which is uh, the pierogies and everything. So these people will have like probably. Oh my God. You're going to leave very, very full. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons I, I, I do that at the end of our workshops is to leave people full and filled. Um, and that's really so important. Full of wonderful feelings and full of great admiration for your singing. Are you going to have some recordings from that singing, Maria? Um, you know what, to be honest, I've been asked that many times and to, that's a whole different lifestyle, really. I mean, if you, because when I put myself into my work, I put all myself 
I really dedicate all my time like as much as I have because I have two kids. So I still, you know, I, I try to do as much as I can. But, I, you know, that, that's where my heart and soul is. And if I focus it on singing and doing records, that's a whole different beast. <laughs> okay, so happy Ponchki Day. Have a wonderful event. If anybody wants to join, they know you guys know how to do that. Maria told you. And uh, definitely worth noting this very special day that not many people know about. National Ponchki Day uh, is on Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Ponchki. What can be more Polish than that? Well, with the exception of pierogi and flaki. There is even a connection of Ponchki to the Polish-African refugee story, which you've just heard in my interview with Jonathan. Can you imagine that the Africans living next... Can you imagine that the people of Tanzania, the local people, living near the former Polish refugee camp, still make and serve Polish ponczki, and those ponczki are very popular with the local population. To learn more about Just Be Cooking, listen to episode 70 and read the story Cooking, Teaching and Singing All in One on the podcast website. In episode 71, in its story page, you will find more information about the upcoming Just Be Cooking events, which Maria talked about. Thank you for accompanying me on these unforgettable trips in time and space. If you like what you heard, share it and tell others. If you want to help me make podcast, please donate to podcast fundraising campaign. Mypodcast.com slash support. Every penny counts and will be most helpful in paying for servers, equipment, etc. Visit us on Facebook. Every day you can find interesting stories, photos, and videos about Poland and Poles around the world. Share, like, and stay in touch. And I leave you with some music from the haunting documentary, Memories Are Homeland, which everyone needs to see. I thought that there'd been nothing left to find when I'd stood in Belarus and Tanzania. But finding this film, I understood that the longer I looked for our history, the less it would be erased. <laughs>